0: Hi, everyone. We've set up this Being an Engineer podcast as an industry knowledge repository, if you will. We hope it'll be a tool where engineers can learn about and connect with other companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. So make some connections and enjoy the show. If you're not making yourself uncomfortable and you're not finding engineering problems that make you real uncomfortable once in a while, you're maybe not being as aggressive as you could be.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Today we're speaking with Ray Kampmeyer, who is an electrical engineering consultant and product developer. Ray earned his double degree from the University of Minnesota in 2013 and in 2015 founded his company, The Humble Transistor, or THD for short. There, he and his team provide electrical engineering and firmware firmware development services spanning from proof-of-concept prototyping to designs for mass production. Ray, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on, Aaron. You're welcome. Well, what made you decide to become an
0: engineer? Hmm, I think I've got to decide how far back to go. Um, I think (laughs) like a a lot of engineers... grew up playing with legos and just kind of tinkering with materials around the house my mom is an art teacher she's a elementary and middle school art teacher and just a good educator and she did a great job inspiring us to use our hands and to craft things and to be passionate about what we build and on the other side of the family my dad is a software developer uh, computer guy, so we got kind of a technical education coming up with that and it wasn't until I was in high school that I met a couple professional electrical engineers and I was really taken with the passion that just oozed out of them. You can tell that, you know, when someone asks what they do, they were just smiling. They were so happy with, with their profession and um and that that kind of description of their job that they shared was infectious. And I, I got bit by the bug. I, I figured, uh, that, that sounds a, like a really fulfilling discipline. And then in addition to all that, um, you know, we, we kind of grew up in this age of internet and computers and it's so new in, in the history of humanity. And, um, I think it's easy to get caught up in all that and just kind of take some of that stuff for granted and I had these lingering questions at least my whole life and and you know some people I think who might think like me or kind of like I got to understand how this works to use it I kind of like got to understand how it work, how it works and um, I always had this this lingering question in the back of my mind of like how does the internet work how does this computer work like what is the screen that I'm viewing web browser on how does that function and so i had this appetite to kind of dig down and learn what a lot of electrical engineers before me decades before me they grew up with so i i did not grow up with um with an atari or with uh you know a a computer where you're dealing with just like such low levels of memory and and things like that and this resource constrained kind of like advent of computing so um, for me, yeah, there was an appetite to kind of like learn back, go backwards and, and learn about what all of this electronics technology is about that is so ubiquitous in today's, today's world.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. I, I like your curiosity for, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants these days. And who uh, who were those shoulders? You know, how, how were those shoulders built? That's cool. Yeah, I
0: want to reach down and ask those giants what their names are and get to know them a little bit. Yeah, yeah, nice.
1: Um, so for for the benefit of those listening who may still be students not yet in the workforce, uh what are some specific things that they can do to be better prepared to to contribute when they when they graduate and specifically like from an electrical engineering standpoint it it might be the same answer if it's mechanical engineering or chemical engineering or or whatever but i'd love to hear your thoughts you know kind of specifically towards electrical engineering what what can
0: they do to um, prepare themselves great question um what jumps to mind is working on a personal project that they're passionate about when you're just starting off it's hard to find a paid work project whether that be an internship or a co-op that you're really really psyched about if, if you have that already that's great you're you know ahead of the game but I would try to think of a way to fuse your discipline that you're interested in studying with something that you're really excited about so for example when I was in high school growing up I knew I had some kind of passion for computers and I decided I wanted to make a, a light like show for my parents' basement that my friends and I could have dance parties with. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to do this, but I knew that as long as I tried hard enough, I'd find some way to do it. I, I figured, hey, there's got to be a handful of different ways to pull this off as a DIY 18-year-old. And um, sure enough, there a lot of frustration and a lot of like pain and mess-ups. I, I got something to work and... and- my friends and myself were really impressed and really happy with the outcome. And, um, so I think it's like, my advice is, uh, yeah, don't get deterred by the frustrations of the like learning curve, the like self educating, uh, process and try to really feed yourself a reward at the end of it and, and spend your time working and being frustrated on a project. That's going to have a fun payout at the end of it.
1: Uh, The title of a book comes to mind, The Obstacle is the Way, and um, I think there's no substitute for just pushing yourself through uh, the process of solving a hard problem in terms of education and and being able to learn. And it's so easy, especially when we're learning something new, which is the case with students and new engineers. They're always learning something new. Uh, It's really easy to get discouraged or want to find a faster way to do this which is natural, you know, but it's, it's that process, that painful process of not knowing how to do it and trying one thing and it didn't work and try something else and it didn't work and trying something else and asking people and reading on forums and, you know, just figuring things out that it's such a powerful process for um,
0: engineers to learn for anyone to learn really. Yeah. I, I, well said. I agree with that. I think it's, it's hard, but you have to kind of develop an intuition for the right way quote unquote to do something. And yeah. that means something different for every individual and for their industry that they're working in. But if you start to think about the methods and the methodology, the methodologies that you employ as your tools and you're constantly sharpening those. And you say, Hey, I know I could whip together this proof of concept in a day, but if I'm working on a production you know, a design that's more production oriented, the right way quote unquote, might be spending a few weeks to do it and make a really robust solution and to really like vet the process that you're exploring.
1: Yeah. And I think an encouraging thought is that these are learnable skills. Um, some people might think that engineers have always been good at this stuff. And um, and that's why they went into engineering. And there's probably some truth to that. Some of us probably are just naturally gifted in that area. Um, I did grow up building with Legos and and fixing my bike and, and things like that so I I, I think I had some um, natural mechanical proclivity but I remember in college I had this this uh, this job working in the, in the physics demo center we had all these cool physics experience uh, experiments that we'd take to the the physics classes for the professor to show the students. And there was a a fair amount of building that went on. Um, A lot of these these demos were already built, but some of them were building brand new and some of them needed maintenance or whatever. And it was so exciting when my boss, for the first time, asked me to design one of these new demos. And so he gave me a few days to work on it and I did a terrible, terrible job. (laughs) It just didn't work at all. It was... It it was not something that a person who had experience designing mechanical systems would ever design. And I remember thinking at that time, geez, I'm I'm a a junior at this point in mechanical engineering. Like, I'm supposed to know how to do all this stuff. What does this mean? You know, have I chosen the wrong path? But that wasn't the case at all. I just didn't have experience actually designing um, uh, mechanical systems. So uh, at this point, you know, I, I have a lot more experience under my belt, and I could design something much quicker, uh, much quicker, and, and, and much more effectively. But uh, that's a skill that you learn over time uh, as, as you figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, uh, there's another point. Maybe I'll wait to bring this one up until a little bit later in the conversation because I think it's it's a point that you and I maybe have in common. Um, let's see, what what are a few of the the most common paths that electrical engineers follow? Um, You know, mechanical engineers, um, they might become a design engineer or focus on R&D or or manufacturing. Uh, What are some common paths in industry that double-E's have to choose from?
0: It's probably very similar to mechanical engineering. I know mechanical engineering can branch out in all those realms you just discussed and many more. Um, That's what I... What I love about electrical engineering, same case, you can go so many routes. You could work for a power utilities company and deal with high voltage transfer from state to state and deal with real high voltage systems. You could do power systems for embedded electronics and smaller scale things. You could do power that's somewhere in the middle where you're doing like charging charging systems for uh, electric vehicles. You can go a signal processing route. It's more of applied math, and you could do things like try to scrub out noise from wind turbines on Doppler radar. So, like you can use uh, digital signal processing and, and uh, advanced applied math and stuff for applications like that. Uh, signal processing, DSP—that's everywhere. So when you're talking about uh, rockets and aerospace and all that even medical there's DSP applied everywhere so that's a great field to be in you've got embedded electronics like what i do where you're building circuit boards for products that serve um, an individual purpose like a product you find at best buy or buy on amazon like uh, Mm headphones headphones digital thermometers um, even like computer monitors these are all considered embedded electronics We've got more general purpose electronics and high speed design. So guys that'll design server uh, motherboards for really high speed data transfer for um, companies like Facebook or you know, any, anybody who's running web servers that exists in our computing products today, like laptops or home computing products. Uh, so I'm probably missing some other ones. Oh, we've got RF. We've got wireless. That's the dark arts of electrical engineering. That's the black magic side of, thing, <laughs> side of things. Um, and then, yeah, you can even go down like test and compliance. So here in the States, the FCC regulates the radio frequencies all around us and stuff. And so th- even within wireless technologies, there are these, uh, niche, in- uh, niche roles in the industry where you could help with certifying and making sure that products comply with government standards. Well, um,
1: speaking of black magic and uh, the the black box here, for me, Double E is entirely just a black box of magic. I don't really get how any of it works. I know I should, but I've never been good with electrical and uh, one of our customers likes to say, I'm not Sparky. He says that about himself, but I think that's very applicable to me. I'm not Sparky. Um, your, your company's named The Humble Transistor, which I think is just such a, a wonderful name, and it, it made me think that uh, there's probably a story behind that. What,
0: how did you come up with that name? Well, I kind of like the name because it reminded me of a medieval guild. It reminded me of, like, the the Gilded (laughs) Hen or, like, you know, um, kind of like an English bar slash uh, medieval guild where you'd you'd go to the, like, um, I don't know, the Diligent Hammer or something. You'd go to this guild and you'd expect a high level of professionalism and reliability and that the people that work there, this is a passion. This is a labor of love for them. Um, And they're really working to refine their craft. And this is a place that they want to be and they want to be working these clients Um, and then the the specific name itself the humble transistor i similar to when we were talking about um, kind of why i was interested in getting into electronics and wanting to work backwards towards the history of like how we've come to a place we are um i wanted to i wanted to kind of draw out this idea of we, we design embedded electronics and we're tied into the real world. So we're kind of at this junction between the mechanical space where we're dealing with um, physics and chemistry in our chips and in our components and the world of software, which is much more abstract and kind of floating above society. It's a little bit harder to grasp and understand how that ties into the real world. And so in addition to that, I also wanted to, emphasize and, and kind of hold ourselves honest of remembering how much you can do with this elemental building block. This transistor is the core component that's spurred this modern information communication age. And it's still it still is the the main shebang. We talk about the chip shortage and what's going on with Taiwan and Taiwan semiconductors. It's all about packing as many transistors as you can into a chip and these transistors um you can you can just do so much with them so in our designs we we try to make these really cost-effective production ready electronics designs and um and like not get weighed down with the bloat of of like highly integrated, uh, really complex, really expensive chips. And, and so we're not taking the easy route. We're not taking the handheld, hand-held like off the shelf, um, pre-made solutions, and just put, putting three or four parts together. We're, we're getting down to the nitty gritty. We're getting down to the lowest level that we work with. And that's the transistor.
1: Very cool. As, as I uh, thought about the name, the Humble Transistor, it got me thinking to, my, to myself, do I really know what a transistor is? And the answer is no, not really. Uh, I know it has something to do with like processing a signal or amplifying a signal or transferring a signal, but I don't really know what a transistor does. I was watching the Apple event the other day and they, they talked about their, their A sixteen chip having like some stupid number of transistors in a ten billion or four trillion or or some very large number. What is a transistor?
0: How does it work? What does it do? Yep, I, I love it. Apple gives us the marketing lingo. They try to wow us with the millions and the billions, but yet you know, they're not explaining the relevance of this. Um so the transistor I guess it, it helps to understand why it was ever made in the first place. And so it started with communications and with uh, with phone lines. So long distance calls, uh, when, when long distance calls were just starting out, there were these telephone exchanges that were like one city block by one city block. These massive buildings, there was one in every prominent city and these had a bunch of like electromechanical relays almost that were connecting different calls and routing calls throughout the country. And Americans had this huge appetite. This is actually, this is global as well, but America pioneered a lot of this and Bell Labs had a lot to do with this, but there's this huge appetite for being able to connect with people across the country. We take that for granted. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at you across the video call right now, but imagine for the first time You're able to call someone in Cincinnati and say, hey, stranger, like, how's it going? What's it like over there? You're able to call someone from a magazine you love and you get to talk to one of the editors uh, in in person. And so there's this huge pressure, like human pressure to pioneer this technology. And the engineers that are supporting this at Bell Labs and a a bunch of other uh, telecommunications companies they're just hustling to keep up. And they're like, it's so fascinating. Like every decade, it's a whole new set of technology that they're using to try to keep up with this demand. And at first they were employing, uh, telephone operators, human beings, and they quickly realized this isn't scalable with the trajectory that this is going. We don't have enough human beings in the world to support this network. We need to automate this. And so they use what they know and and they, um, at the time, there were these really sophisticated electromechanical relays, and I think Germany was sourcing some really good ones at the time. And, um, so this, these would take min- minutes and minutes to like relay your calls, and they were prone to burning out, and they would require a huge building, and kick out a lot of heat. And so Bell Labs pioneered a solid-state switch. So rather than an electromechanical switch, they created the transistor. So at the simplest form, you could think of a transistor as a three-way, not a three-way, a three-port valve. You've got your input and your output on this valve. And then the control is also an electrical signal. So when you look at the light switch in your house, you could think of that as a quote-unquote three-port device where you've got your input, your house's electricity, 120 volt, and then where the light bulb connects, And then the third port, the third um, connection, is your finger, and you're mechanically toggling that. And so the, the breakthrough of the transistor is there's no mechanical control. It's an electrical control. And so now the input, the output, and the control signal on this valve, they're all within the same domain, the domain of the electron. And what that allows us to do is to pack millions and billions of these on the same chip and have them all routed to one another. And so now what started as a simple electromechanical manual control light switch on your wall, we've got kind of what's like neurons in the brain. We've got these little valves that are like synapses that are talking to one another, controlling one another. And now we've got these vast, vastly complex valve networks that are scooting the electrons around in novel ways and performing the tasks that we've kind of come to accept like doing things like presenting what our monitor shows to us routing our data through the internet and and allowing our phones to function that was a
1: wonderful description i don't think i've ever heard anyone put it uh so so succinctly or or just descriptively that was great thank you so much thank you um so the, the the transistor. Then you said that it it functions entirely in the electrons domain. Is that to say that you would you can't see a transistor under a microscope? There's no like mechanical structure necessarily. Well, it has to be some kind of mechanical structure, but
0: there there is mechanical structure, and you can you can see them. You can even make them in your garage. There's some there's some great electrical en- engineers out there that are posting YouTube videos of how to make a transistor just like they did back in the 60s at Bell Labs and stuff. And, um, but in today's age, you, you hear things like uh, three nanometer um, chip technology and, and you hear these nanometer scales that um, AMD are making computer processors with and Apple is making their custom silicon and these scales. And at that point, it's, it's so small. That you you would need a I don't, I electron don't, microscope. You would need an electron microscope, right? I'm trying to think of what industries even have that level of um, <laughs> imaging, but um, at at its core, it's it's really cool. It, it's like electrical engineering and technology as we know it is pioneered by. mathematicians they create the language in which we can build technology they create this system in which we can even like discover new technology physicists and chemists and so when you study semiconductors at and this is a whole nother realm of electrical engineering you ask which ways you can go there's people who purely just design silicon for chips and, and deal with um creating these new processes we can pack more different into These chips and um so at at its core it's um they start with bare silicon silicon is a crystal so when you have people out there that are kind of mocking these like new age energy healers and people who use crystals to like levitate and do things like that I, i always get a laugh out of remembering that like our phones are running on these magic crystals. that like let us communicate <laughs> with people around the world. And it's, it's, they all started. Yeah. It's a more scientific approach to the magic crystals, but they, um, they use, it's a type of like holography or it's a actually maybe, it might not technically be holography, but they use these really, really high end ma- masks that, um, you're projecting light and basically etching away layers of the silicon, and then on top of that, there's a whole bunch of processes that I'm not qualified to speak on. But you're you're essentially growing like oxide insulation layers, and so you're growing these little nano structures. It's kind of like um, nanotechnology. You're making these tiny mechanical structures, but the the term "solid state" implies there's no moving parts, so other than the flow of electrons within these molecules. There's no uh, physical moving parts, so there's no wear and tear.
1: Wow, that's very cool. I, I've heard that in in semiconductor, all of the chips that are made are made with the same process. And what difference? differentiates whether a chip is, uh, I don't know if this is even quite the c- correct terminology, but like an i7 versus an i9 Intel chip is uh, how well that process worked on the chip. They try to make them all the exact same, but because of manufacturing Processes uh, just uh, variations in the manufacturing process; they don't all come out the same. So, some of them end up being faster than others, and, and those get classified as i nine or i seven or, or whatever they are, and sold at different
0: price points. Is that is that accurate? That's very accurate. Um, it's a unique it's a unique approach to salvaging yield. It's, it's so in manufacturing, whether it's you are making mechanical products or electrical products, you've got some percentage that fails your quality control checks and so the processor manufacturers in today's age whether that's intel or amd they have a unique approach to it they say it's ineffective for us to try to dial in our process so that we're getting 99.9 percent yield what we're going to do is we're going to design and architect our our transistor kind of little city with you know within the chip and we're going to make it in a way so that if we detect that certain sectors or certain subsystems are not functioning because this really, really detailed, super microscopic process, you know, it's error prone, we're going to just disable those and sell it as a lesser tiered product.
1: That's brilliant.
0: Great business strategy. <laughs> That's a good business strategy. And then one, one quick thing I want to add uh, um, related to the yield is I heard just in in the industry from a friend who'd worked for a big silicon manufacturer is there'll be things like, um, you'll get a, when you're working there, you'll get notices of like, Hey, we want to warn people that a certain deodorant or, um, uh, perfume or something is affecting yield. And so just chemical traces going through a clean room jumpsuit in wow. just one small step of this whole process can significantly throw off yield that you're going to have to ask your employees to change up their personal hygiene.
1: <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, one of the team members here at Pipeline worked uh, at Intel for some time, and he was telling us stories about troubleshooting they had, and they, their their yield had fallen off. And they couldn't figure out why, and they spent, I can't remember how long it was. it was, it was maybe a week or something. And the, the line was down for this entire period, which is a huge loss in revenue. And, uh, they were, they were getting like traces of, uh, I think it was copper just where they, they weren't supposed to have any and they, they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. And finally they found out that there was a, a, a mechanical connection somewhere, and uh, a copper fitting had been used where it was supposed to be a, a different material. And just the the tiny trace molecules of copper that got scraped off into the air when that, that fitting was connected or disconnected was enough to, to throw off the balance of this entire line and, and decimate their yield, which was just mind-blowing to me that such a small thing could have
0: such a huge impact. Aaron, it reminds yeah. me of... Um... Tin whiskers. Have you encountered that at all? It's kind of related to aerospace and metals used no, in products. Uh-uh. there's a phenomenon. It's a type of like uh, metal migration. So there's a handful of different forms of this, and it remind. I think it's probably similar to this, uh, where like tiny copper flakes can like catalyze metals actually growing out in like a plant in a certain direction. Uh, t- Fascinating. T- the tin whiskers—it it happens more in zero gravity. So when you're working on satellites or you're working on aerospace um, projects, like what NASA would be would be looking at, they're, they realize that metals and certain alloys would grow what look like whiskers, and they're just like these perfect, almost like a crystal, and they're like these perfect hairs that look like a cat's whisker, and it would it would short out electronics. You'd have satellites going out of commission or losing sensors oh, and man. stuff. And um, it's, it's nutty, yeah. Once once you, it's like the further you learn about some of these industries, the more like mysteries <laughs> just crop up.
1: Which is why they the the world needs engineers like us to solve these little problems. Yeah. Well, I'll take just a very short break here and share with the listeners that Teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Ray Kampmeyer today, and. Uh, Ray uh, earlier I, I mentioned that I was gonna save a question for a little bit later so this is the point in the conversation where I'm gonna bring this back um, you uh, I think if I uh, got the math right here only worked for a few years after graduating before starting your company how did you uh, decide to to hang your shingle and start your own business after only
0: you know a few years um, well Aaron when I was in school I was always really self-motivated and self-driven when i was in high school i remember i was taking a computer science class and my teacher wasn't a big fan of me because i was jumping ahead and trying to shoot forward past the curriculum and and um kind of like take what i was learning and really try to run with it and um so i was hot to trot. i was kind of chomping at the bit ready to break out through the gates and when i was in college i was hard worker when it came to the school the schooling but I was really a hard worker when it came to passion projects and and outside projects and so I I was working with some artists in Minneapolis and working on art installations and um, somehow that led me to get into product development so those were kind of like the first products I was working on were these one-offs that were up and running for a few months and a lot of animatronics and uh, puppetry and stuff and animatronic theater. Um, I, after that, I, I got linked up with this company called Logic Product Development in Minneapolis. And that was like heaven for me. That was like Willy Wonka's factory. It had mechanical engineering, industrial design, electrical engineering, a whole staff of project managers. Uh, they had a manufacturing line where they were doing medical, military, aerospace, Uh, product manufacturing and so it was basically like full turnkey design services and manufacturing and um, for a guy like me it was like huge appetite to learn about the industry and everything and all everybody who I needed to talk to was right there and so uh, that that was really exciting And, and like to this day this is a college internship and I just absorbed so much and I'm, I'm so happy for an opportunity like that. So you talked a little bit about like what people can do who are in school and still thinking about this. It escaped me at the time, but you got to get an internship. You got to get a co-op. You got to talk to somebody, even if it's unpaid. Get out there, you know, get into an industry that you're excited about and start to try to help them out in the best way you can. I was entirely ineffective for this company. I, I was doing a lot of like, um, you know, hands-on kind of like a lot of manual testing and, and, um, uh, technician work and stuff like that. But I was able to ask really smart engineers questions every single day. And then to just pick their brain, I felt like I was paying my dues by doing the grunt work. And I, in turn would ask a lot of questions and try to just soak up as much as I could. So, after that, when I had graduated, I moved to California to join a small startup company as a second employee at a company called Punch Through Design. They do similar work to what I do here. They had a lot of emphasis on Bluetooth and like IoT products. And I uh, helped help grow that company a little bit. We released a product called the Light Blue Bean. Um, that was an internal product that helped people fast track making IoT products it's like a little arduino development kit that runs on a tiny coin cell battery you can program it from your phone so you could be kicked back on your couch and prototyping your next great invention all from your phone Um, and then in addition to doing those we were doing a lot of client projects so we're working with a million different startups not a million but you know Dozens of startups in the Bay Area and I'm learning all these pain points. So I, I had already gotten some product development jobs or at least been exposed to what's out there and best practices and you know, how to do design verification and how to certify things at an FCC lab. And um, I just you know, learned kind of the rigor of what's required for medical, military, industrial consumer products. And now, now I was in the Bay Area, able to apply that, and it, so it was very fast paced. So you, you mentioned you're right; I started this business maybe three years out of college, and um, but I feel really grateful to. It felt like I had worked for you know dozens of companies, and just getting an inside look at at all these startups who are trusting us to come in and implement these best engineering practices for them. So towards the end of that time at Punch Through, I figured, hey. Um, I'm ready to do this for myself. Like, I know how I want to do this. Not to say that punch through is bad at, at doing the product development. I just knew that I have a way that I want to do this. I, I want to put it all together now. I, I'm I'm done. Um, I'm done kind of like waiting and kind of like paying my dues, like waiting for my time to put in into motion. And, and that's when I started the Humble Transistor and uh, been enjoying it ever since. And, and like I said, it's like, as long as you're self-driven and you're you're willing to learn and refine your own methodologies every single day, and to try to do your job better every single day, it's like you know, just do it. Just take the leap of faith, right? Like, um, I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I'm still learning every every day here, so I, I'm pretty happy with that decision.
1: Well, listening to you talk, it sounds like you had a much more sure-footed beginning than, than I did when I started Pipeline. I got laid off. That's how I started Pipeline and I'd only been working for about three years professionally. I had a couple of internships before that. By the way, I agree 100% with what you were saying about internships. The reason I got my first job was because I had an internship and already knew some very you know basic skills. Uh, anyway, I got laid off. It was during the recession, and I started Pipeline because I'd didn't feel like going back to work for another company but i definitely had a lot of imposter syndrome um i did not have the luxury of of having worked for you know uh a plethora of different companies when I started, and there were a lot of things I just didn't know how to do. It's probably one—I don't know, maybe one reason why I'm so bad at e- electrical because I—I I, I didn't do any electrical, and when I went off on my own, that was definitely not my strong suit. So I didn't pursue anything even closely related to electrical. Anyway, um, the uh, we talked earlier about what can engineers do to prepare themselves. I feel like I'm really good at what I am good at now, which is mechanical design. I'm I'm not the strongest analytical engineer for sure, but I'm really good when it comes to mechanical design engineering. And I think the reason I'm so good at it is because I... I didn't have many resources to turn to when I started my company. And so I spent a lot of extra time on my own just trying to figure things out, you know, with, whether it was some research on the internet or just trying something and it didn't work. So trying something else and reading through SOLIDWORKS forums and learning the CAD tools and, and talking with vendors and understanding what material is going to work and what kind of bend radius certain aluminums can accept for sheet metal and all these different things. And that was, uh, I mean, trial talk about trial by fire that that was definitely it and and i learned you know so much through that experience of just trudging through the the difficulty every day but it, it was also fun because I, I love doing this stuff so <laughs> i don't want to make it sound like it was uh just this arduous uh ordeal that uh that that i hated that that wasn't the case at all it's just a a lot of work but a lot of fun work
0: well it shows aaron pipeline is so polished and professional and to hear you say that i'm like okay well you must have you clearly had a lot of success in the method that you employed there
1: oh thank you i appreciate you saying that yeah Uh, i think that there is something too that you mentioned how you were kind of done um, putting in your dues and you were ready to do it your way. I I think that's a hallmark of entrepreneurs. We want to do things our way. And I definitely have strong opinions about how things should be done and the right processes and and things like that. So um, I've always thought engineers make great business owners because we're very process uh, oriented and, and I don't know uh, an engineer entrepreneur, I think, I think is a powerful combination.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And, and, I'm glad to hear you, you share the same sentiment about, yeah, doing it our way. And I don't mean that as like an, a control freak, um, kind of like controlling attitude, but it's like, um, I think it's important to do your work to your own standards and to make sure your standards meet or exceed the clients. Uh, I just, that's one of the big ones. And when I said I was ready, it was like, I knew To what level i wanted to perform and to i wanted to do right by the clients and i kind of knew what um what was required to like at the end of the day feel like i contributed and created something of value because it's technology is so confusing you could work all day for years and years and years and Mm -hmm. at the end of it all the overall project was a flop or, you know, something happened or you were just off the mark, you were working towards the wrong direction. And so, um, I felt like, Hey, I'd accumulated some knowledge and I could use it in a really potent way and I could do right by the clients and get them the most bang for their buck. Yeah. Yep.
1: Fantastic. Uh, let's see. I think just, uh, I've got a few more questions to go through and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. Um, can you can you think of a time when you got stuck on a technical problem and you just didn't know how to solve it? It was beyond your means at that time. And what did you do to find the solution and what did you learn from that experience? Good question.
0: Sounds like a, that's like a good job interview question. (laughs) Um, Well, I think one good lesson to remember for especially electrical engineers, I know there's like, I feel like when you're at engineering school, you kind of get these stereotypes for all the engineering disciplines. You got the civil engineers who maybe know how to party a little bit more and you got the mechanical engineers who are a little more well-rounded. You got some better people skills and I don't mean to diss us, but the electrical engineers like we're known for our math skills. I don't think we're particularly the most personable socialites. (laughs) Um,
1: I I wouldn't say that. I always thought of electrical engineers as like well, chemical and electrical felt like the the top tier engineers. Those were the guys who were really really smart. Okay. And then there was mechanical, and then there was civil. I'll throw the civil under the rug just like you did. Okay.
0: No, and I, I wasn't yeah I wasn't trying to bash the civil. I think I think there's something so there's when and what I'm getting at um maybe it'll make more sense as I continue this thought. But um I was going to say. Some of the most challenging problems I have faced were ones where I realized I've got my head in the sand. I, I've, I've dug, I've dug into a problem so deep where I've kind of like lost touch with um, people in my network who could help. You know, it, it could be as simple as reaching out for help and just writing a detailed forum post or calling up that uh, old coworker of yours who had worked in a related field and maybe asking them and so you know it could it could be as as easy as me writing you, Aaron, and saying, Aaron, I've got this mechanical automation problem and I don't know if it's big enough to be a project that you're interested in, but like, would you mind giving me some, you know, feedback on this? And so for example, one of those times it happened with wireless certifications. We failed a wireless certification and you're at the testing lab and you're just hemorrhaging money you're you're having to pay per day so you're like i gotta solve this in a matter of hours because i just i can't be i can't be paying for every single day that we can't figure out this bug um and so in that case i I was i was really happy this is early on in my career i was happy to be forced into a position where i realized okay even though i fancy myself as a generalist i i can't solve this this is over my head this is a very niche domain and i can't solve this at least in a matter of hours and so um it was a reminder to me that as an engineer you really need to foster a good network of people in these different domains that you can count on you can lean on and you can in turn reciprocate and and provide this domain expertise to to guide people when they're in a pinch because if you're not making yourself uncomfortable and you're not finding engineering problems that make you real uncomfortable once in a while, you're maybe not being as aggressive as you could be.
1: Great quote. I love that. All right. Well, let's see. I'll just do maybe one more question here and we'll wrap it up. What, what tool do you think should exist that currently does not exist that would help engineers
0: do their jobs better? It's a good question. I, one area of our job that I think is pretty uniform across a lot of engineers, a lot of computer scientists, scientists is searching for information on the internet, and that could be through academic literature. You can use you know tools to find white papers and acad- academic papers, um, but it's hard to get around avoiding Google. We all gotta, we all need to Google things, and Google is this huge. Uh, wealth of information and it occurred to me recently that i just might not be brushed up or educated enough on like the latest google algorithms or the way to format uh, words uh, search queries on there and so it made me think that whether that be at a typical four-year college academic environment whether they add a class or something like that of like the art of teaching yourself right like the art of finding Mm. out answers to the problems or the questions that you have um back in the day when we were growing up you know we all went to the library and were taught about the dewey decimal system and how to interface with a librarian and things like that and so you know it's it's not as hands up it's not like a very direct engineering specific tool but i think something that would help a lot of us who are constantly seeking answers every day in our work. Uh, I think maybe just like getting a refresher on these are the different tools. This is how Google has changed. Like this all was spurred off, spurred on by, I had this moment where I just realized like, does the order of words affect my search query? Does Google weigh words when I put a um, question mark? does it behave differently and, and try to infer that this is more of a question? Um, and so, yeah, that that's kind of what I think. What, what about you? Do, do you see something as being an obvious upgrade for engineering tools? I always go to communication.
1: Uh, I, I think as engineers, we are technically trained very well at school, but there isn't a single class in college about how to communicate with others. And that is as big if not bigger part of our jobs as engineers than than the technical side of things is just knowing how to talk with other people um i I just interviewed andre soto mayor who's a principal engineer at johnson and johnson and he has this great quote he says it doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room if everyone thinks you're a jackass and it's so true um uh, so I think better communication tools, and I admit I don't know exactly what that means, but but better ways for people to talk with each other and communicate, you know, a thought from one brain to uh, another brain.
0: I do it by talking really fast and just throwing a lot of things out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They'll pick up on the most important parts. Sure. Yeah. Uh, our our engineering manager michael likes to say that the the meaning of communi- oh, how does he put it uh, uh, the meaning of communication is the result you get in other words if you tell a person something but you get the re- a result that you weren't looking for that's on you because you had poor communication so the meaning of communication is the result that you get i like that Yeah. All right. Well, Ray, thank you so much for spending this time with me today, uh, taking some time out of your busy, busy schedule to share some wisdom and insight with all of the the listeners. Um, Anything else that you think we should talk about that we haven't hit on yet?
0: Um, I just want to say it one more time, Aaron, like, thanks for having me on. And I'm not trying to just pump up pipeline just because you had me on here. I'm, I'm a huge fan and I've followed you for, I think, a couple of years now. Um, oh Wow. I am so impressed with the marketing material that you put out and just the, like I said, the level of polish in your company's work. And it just, it speaks for itself. You talk about a, a picture, you know, speaking louder than a thousand words, like, you know, you got millions of words packed into this picture. And, and it's just, um, I, I'm excited to be working with you guys more in the future. And uh, I'm just impressed. I, I, I think but you mentioned the power of like an engineering driven company and, and I think pipeline clearly is that.
1: Wow. Thank you so much for seeing that, Ray. I'll, I'll send you that check we talked about later. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. That's very, very kind of you. Thank you. All right. Well, um, this is great Ray and uh, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of pipeline design and engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.